Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Pep. Great to be back in the studio. You're looking festive over there today. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is the season. It is I the thought, season. It's getting close. You know, yeah, and I'm not with my little cherry red sweater, my green shirt. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you got I'm, the you got the Santa beard coming in, looking Santa good. Santa. <laughs> <laughs> the Santa beard. Yeah, that's that's what that's what people see me. That's the first thing they think. That's what they do. Like for. you are working on the Santa beard. The Santa beard. Yeah, sort of the cool jazzy Santa. I think yeah. would have to be, you know. <laughs> right, Santa, if he hung out in New Orleans all the time, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Right. He's like, Santa, if he played uh, the upright bass. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so we are here in our third season of the Being Known podcast, and uh, <clears throat> we are going through the book, The Soul of Desire, written by Dr. Kurt Thompson. And we are going through each episode is a new chapter, and we are on chapter nine this week, which is is entitled Inquire. Hmm. These last few episodes and chapters that uh, hopefully you've been reading along and uh, listening along to, the central theme of these has been Psalm 27.4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that may I dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. And this chapter, we are using the NRSV version, which is, and to inquire in his temple. So I love this chapter, Kurt. There's met a lot of new characters in this chapter <laughs> from the community groups um, yeah. and was really riveted by their stories. Mm. Um, and the overall chapter following these four questions mm. um, that that are asked in these community groups, we've talked about a couple of these questions in our episode on dwell. Right. Um, but I would love for you just to jump in and introduce this and um, let's go for it. Yeah. Well, I think also we'll, we'll try to include as much of these stories as we can if we can yeah, for sure. want to. Yeah. Um, cause I think that we, we run into some experiences that, uh, we don't uh, often encounter in Safeway. That um, is for sure. And, and I, you know, although I, I will say this, this is an aside, you know, one of the questions that is coming to me frequently where, you know, when I've, I've gone places to speak and we're, we're talking about this material and we talk about these confessional communities Mm -hmm. One question is, well, gosh, like, how do we, how do we do this? And, you know, all those things. And we'll get to that uh, eventually in our next episode in more detail. But part of, uh, I, th I think these, these communities are so compelling, but they also feel in some respects, they feel, they can often feel so other. They can feel so yeah. different. Like, like this seems like you have to work really hard to construct these groups in particular ways. These aren't the kind of groups that would just organically show up in your church. They wouldn't organically show up in your living room. You wouldn't, you know, this wouldn't be a natural thing that we just do right after we play basketball for an hour and a half on Monday night. And so they can sometimes feel kind of really are artificial. And by artificial, I don't mean fake, but artificial in that like you really have to go out of your way to construct it in a particular way. And you've got to have two therapists and all these rules and regulations, all these things, like nothing feels very organically natural about it. Right. At least that's what people say until I remind people that the reality is that everything that we do in these confessional community groups, and this then will point to and include like some of the stories that we talk about today, everything that we do in these community groups, we are doing in every other interpersonal interaction domain in our lives, in our families, at work, at school, at play, with our church, at the gas pump, in Safeway. What is different is, as it turns out, what's different is not so much all the rules and regulations. It's not so different just because you've got, you know, two therapists that are kind of helping to facilitate this. What sets these groups apart is two things. Number one is the degree of intentionality with which we are going to be present with each other. 
I'm going to be so intentional about being present with you in this moment that I'm not going to let the automaticity of the moment be in charge of the moment. So, right, you know, you, you come to Safeway and you, you go through the checkout line and everybody's kind of like on autopilot, right? They're, the checkout clerk is checking out your groceries and you're saying, and you're, everybody's being pleasant and so forth and they say, Merry Christmas or whatever, and you say thank you and you go on your way and like a day later, you might be hard pressed to remember like who it was that you, that was checking out your groceries because I'm not being very intentional about my being present with this person at any given time. And so this is the first thing that we do. We are intentional. The degree to which we are in purpose, on on purpose, being present with and in the relational interaction that we're in, no matter where that happens to be in our life. That's number one. And number two, it is the degree to which or depth to which we are aware of the multi-dimensions of the interaction that's taking place at any given time. So you're having an interaction in passing with someone and maybe they're not treating you as well as you would want them to. And you don't even know this person. Again, it might, you know, if you were in Safeway. And, you know, all I want to do is I just react to this on the surface, right? I'm like, gosh, that was rude. I'm not that aware of, I'm not that attuned to the multiple dimensions of the story that's unfolding. Like, oh, something else, like... I'm much more apt to ask the question, what's wrong with that person, than to ask the question, what happened to that person? Because I myself am operating on autopilot, and they treat me in a certain way, and I feel that that's rude, and so that's, and I go away, and that's that's how I encode that memory. Yeah, I had a really rude interaction with a Safeway employee today. I'm no more curious than that. But one of these things that these intentional communities help us practice becoming as I say, like, we, are, we, we join these groups in order for us to become professional human beings. We want to become, like, first-team, all-pro human beings. And, what, and, and the way that we become that is these two features where we are going to be, we are going to work at exercising the muscle of intentionality with which I am on purpose going to be present in the relational interactions that I'm having in any domain of life that I have, number one. And number two, I am going to be practicing being aware of as much depth of the interaction as I can be aware of. And this chapter on inquire provides a certain blueprint, if you will, a certain structure for how we do both of these things. How do we exercise and strengthen our capacity to be intentional about things? And then how do we be intentional about the level of depth with which this interaction is taking place? And now, you know, y'all might be thinking, like, dude, like, I don't really want to have that kind of intentionality or depth with my, you know, like, I'm just trying to get through my freaking Safeway grocery list. And, you know, Pepper, maybe, like we were talking about before, that might not be that much because, like, you're only just going for one thing at a time. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Funny man. Back to Kroger. (laughs) Going to buy one item at a time for Thanksgiving. He's back. You're right. I just want to be known. Too. Pepper, you want to be known, and like the the frequency with which you're seen by people. Exactly. Yep. Right. Why make one big trip when you can make seven or eight? Seems logical to me. This sounds like me all the time. Phil, I get home. You know. Wait. Let me. So. So I will say. Okay. So Kurt Vonnegut uh, talked about when. He would mail. He would go get stamps and mail stuff, letters to people and everything. And somebody was like, you know, why, you know, you can buy a whole pack of stamps, you can, or a whole roll. And he said, yeah, but, but then I would miss out on the conversation that I have with, you know, the grocer as I'm passing his, and, I, and then I miss out on the opportunity to go in, in the post office and stand in line and talk to people there and Ugh. all the different things that are happening, right? So it's not about getting the stamp as much as it is about the interactions in his life all along the way that would be completely missed if he just got a full roll of stamps to use, you know, and go once a month. My God, that's fascinating, right? That is, that, yeah, right on. I mean, like, there, and there is this sense in which, you know, to, I mean, how, how often am I like, you know, I, 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 my, my schedule for my day, I don't, you know, yeah. whether, whether it's on, you know, Tuesday at the office or if it's on Saturday here and something comes up and there's the opportunity to interact with a person, but I got things to do. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't want to go interact with the person because I got, I got things to do. 
and just recently have just been really deeply convicted about how quickly and easily my autopilot has my tasks being far more important than any people that I interact with. Yeah. And so to pause and be present with that person and you discover at the end of your day or at the end of your week or at the end of several weeks of practicing this, uh, my life is no poorer because I didn't get all those tasks done. And like, there will be no end to the number of tasks I have to get done. It's not right. like I'm going to get these tasks done. And then like, you know, I think sometime by the end of 2021, I won't have any more tasks to do. <laughs> no more. I'll be done. Wouldn't no. that be awesome? It would be. <laughs> it would be. But, you know, I, but, but I'm just far more likely to like, I got to get, because I'm anxious. Yeah. Because I'm working really hard to make sure that, I'm, you know, not disappointing people with all the things that I have to get done to, you know, all, all that, all that kind of thing. So that, that whole thing for Kurt Vonnegut that you're describing is such a poignant story. And so we, we, we see the wisdom in that and we see how that kind of like, ugh, like I, ugh. and so this, this chapter on inquire, I'm, I'm reminded, I, I, I mentioned to you that, uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday, I had the chance to re- revisit uh, Lord of the Rings movies, mm-hmm. and in this, uh, in this, in Peter Jackson's version, the Ents, which are the you know the the, tr- the living trees, yeah. you know, these and uh, and one of their most significant characteristics is the slowness of the pace with which they do absolutely everything including the you know and like you're listening to the movie and like you you the ant is talking right at with a cadence and you're like could you could you please just say what you need to say <laughs> like i just i just want to fast forward through the movie to get through that dialogue and there is a sense in which the whole notion of inquiry invites me to slow my pace because i'm going to ask well, as, as we will, as we are discovering, you know, the inquiries, I'd like to ask the question and just chop, chop. You just give me the answers and I can then move on to get my tasks done. Right. Uh, especially if the task is of becoming a professional human being, I want that to be done. Like again, you know, hopefully maybe by the end, by Christmas, by the end of the year, at the very least, very latest. And so this notion that like, you know, the, the different versions of the fourth verse of Psalm 27 that has, that I can inquire or the Lord or they seek him in his temple. This notion of seeking is necessarily leading to when I seek the Lord, the implication is that I'm seeking to ask of him. I, I long for things from him. I'm going to ask for him. I'm going to name what I want. I'm going to pursue that. And this is why I like the NRSV's version of I'm going to inquire of him. But this doesn't just say I'm going to ask and he's going to answer and this whole thing will be done very, very quickly. There is this implication of there being now a conversation. And that very, that very reality necessarily points to a long-standing relationship. This is going to take the rest of my life. This inquiry will last for the rest of my life. And as we'll see in chapter 10, in many respects, this inquiry is what we're about in order for us to practice for what's coming. Hmm. It's getting us ready to know how to be in conversation with God when the new heaven and the new earth arrives. Because we're not, you know, we don't have a lot of practice being in conversation with him in the way that the psalm points us to doing. And so, right, we, and, 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 and the Bible, of course, is full of all kinds of questions uh, that God asks of people, that people ask of God, that people ask of each other. It's because it's, it's God's story, it's our story. And so there, there's no end to the number of questions that we could ask. But in this chapter, I decided to just highlight four questions. Uh, they're not... I'm not suggesting that they are the, the most important questions or the only questions or the best questions, but they are four questions that are, you know, that come out of God's mouth or come out of Jesus' mouth and, uh, and I think really help us uh, begin to, again, practice and expand our imaginations as we talked about a couple of chapters ago, expanding our imaginations out beyond their comfort zone even, but because we're doing it in the context of community, and because these conversations and these inquiries take place in the context of these confessional communities, the questions point us in a direction of being secure, right? 
that whole sense of being seen, soothed, safe, and expanding into places of security. Right, right. And the first question that, that we ask is, is one that we've asked, but let's delve into it a little bit more, which is, um, where are you? Right? Right. And I'm not really asking you where your physical location is when I ask you that question. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Although, you know, it's, it's not, it, it, I, I think it is, uh, it, it's, it's not unimportant for us to know, like, well, where are you? I mean, I'd like, I, I, we, we like to know where each other is. This is the question. Yeah. Where are you in relationship to me? And most of us, if someone were to ask us this question, where are you? Unfortunately, we are only able to think in our siloed ways of considering that, like, if somebody asked me that question, I'm just thinking, like, well, where I happen to be. I don't imagine that they're asking in relationship to them. But this is the question in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, that God comes to Adam with. Where are you? And of course, it's not surprising the text would indicate that Adam's probably afraid that God's coming to kill him. In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And this is the assumption that perhaps that Adam is making, that God's coming to kill him. And so, like, where I happen to be, like, I don't really even want to tell you exactly that, because, like, you know, then it gives you my coordinates, and then, like, you send a smart bomb, and then it's all over. Instead, he does, you know, when his anxiety, like, emerges and mushrooms, you know, he deflects and distracts and all the things that happen in that. But again, this is crucially important for us because it is really entering into these questions of really telling the truth about where we actually are in all of our stories and not least which being the parts of our stories that we've been working really, really hard to keep out of others' awarenesses, including keeping out of my own awareness. Where am I? Yeah. And when you're asking where are you in the context of the confessional communities? The question is involved involves are you seen, soothed, safe, and secure? Right. And where are you in relationship to those things, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 And in the book you talk about uh, Carmen mm. and her the idea of uh, her relationship with her husband and how any conversations she has with, with him is going to end in a fight, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the group, in particular, one of the other therapists in the group, yeah. begins to inquire, mm-hmm. you know, why she feels this way. And they do a little mm-hmm. role play mm-hmm. and they, they figure it out. And the, I think the great thing that comes out of the illustration that comes out of that is Carmen, in conversation, in this role play, in a conversation with a group, she builds the confidence of taking the group with her mm-hmm. so that she can have mm-hmm. that conversation mm-hmm. with her husband. Mm-hmm. But it's, right. it's, that, it's that practice of feeling, taking that feeling of, of safe, of seen, soothed, safe, and secure with, that the group gives her into the rest of her life. That's right. right. That's exactly yeah. right. And so this notion of like, uh, I mean, one of, the, one, of the, one of the most powerful elements of these confessional communities is the very thing that you're pointing out, Pep, this idea that over time, we, you know, as we talked about before, we move through this, these, these different phases of, well, I'm just here in the group. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to a group. There's me, and then there's the group. Moving from there to, oh, there, we're, we're kind of like in, we, we are together in the group, but we leave and we're not, you know, to then this phase of like, no, uh, I'm not just in the group when I come for these 90 minutes. Like, I am the group, and then I take the group with me everywhere that I go. And so there is this growth in awareness that when someone asks me the question, well, Kurt, where are you? I can say, I'm right here, and Pepper is sitting to my left, Amy's sitting to my right, Byron and Jerry and Neil and Rich are around me. I'm in this room. This is, I'm, I am here with my cloud of witnesses. I'm here with this group. And so as Carmen, and then this is what, what the group did, right? Because Courtney, as she, the therapist, as she, as she pursued her, as she inquired of her, where are mm-hmm. you? Right. She was inviting not just Carmen, but the different parts of Carmen that were so sure that everything was just going to end in a fight. That part of her, Courtney was inviting that part into the room. And that part that once was being hidden is now being given access to everybody in the room, to which we can then say, we're bringing this part in to be seen, soothed, safe, 
enabled to be secure. So that, as you're right, so that when she imagines now engaging with her husband, Graham, right, that everything about the dynamic changes because her whereabouts has changed in relationship to those who are with her in the process. Yeah. Yeah. And we see so often in the book, we see examples of how when one person brings something to the group, how that impacts everyone else in the group from hearing the story to thinking about their own story through that that lens. And, and I think we see a really great example of that when we get into the question of what do you want, mm-hmm. where we meet Ella mm. and William mm. and Joy and Cora, all sort of characters in this story. And it is intense. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, intense. Yeah. So I, I, I would love, I would love to just kind of hear your rendition of that. I mean, I'm, what, what yeah, that was so, like for you, even as you heard it. Yeah, so um, it starts with Ella, who starts telling the group about a feeling that she has that her boss is being inappropriate, I, I guess is the, is the... He's sending her emails that have nothing to do with work that are, um, that are you know, what do you think about this, um, seeking her interest in things, and it's making her feel uncomfortable. He's not made any, any sexual advances or mm-hmm. anything like that, but it's making her feel uncomfortable, to which right away, I believe it's Joy in the group chimes in. It makes me feel really uncomfortable right now hearing you say this. This is not, you know, she's, she's feeling tenseness in her body. She's feeling uncomfortable based on, <laughs> on what's happening. And as, as Ella tells the story, you know, it comes out that she, she isn't really sure if she's, if she's feeling, if, if this is a pursuit of, from her boss or, or mm-hmm. what this is, but she knows it's, it's not comfortable. And then William chimes in with, of course, he's pursuing you. And <laughs> the room kind of gets like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? And he's like, well, you know, you're, you're, Engaging, you're attractive. You're, you know, I, I, I'm sure he is. And, and and how do you, how are you so sure? Well, because I'm attracted to you. <laughs> that he says in front of the whole group. Now William is married. Um, Ella is married. She is to the point that she's, you know, she gets to the point that she's thinking she needs to leave her job because this is getting so uncomfortable, and. William, we find out, has for the past couple months been meeting with you Mm -hmm. and has talked to you about these feelings that are developing. And it was the thing that he didn't want to come into the group at all because it was a (laughs) co-ed group, Mm -hmm. because he was afraid this very thing was going to happen. Right. To which you begin to, and he, and he, had a conversation with his wife about this prior that you know and all this and she encouraged him to come and and you inquire you start asking him the questions and and the and the big question is what do you want and you keep going back to that and and what do you think's going to happen what do you what are you afraid of what do you, you know and and he and then you say you come out and you just say are you are you afraid that you're going to want to have sex with her mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to which he's like, no, I don't, that's, that's what I'm afraid of in the first place. So I don't ever want to, I don't, I don't want to think about that, about, you know, anybody except for my wife. And that, that's what the whole situation is. And he was afraid of that that was going to end up being a desire of his. Mm-hmm. But what we discover is the, through the biblical narrative, what the desire is that he's really looking for mm-hmm. is to be seen, soothed, mm-hmm safe mm-hmm. and secure, understood and wanted right. and right. someone to be that, that he found attracted to be attracted to him and all of these things. And what he really wanted was more of that for in, in the context of his own marriage. Right. Um, right. So yeah, just, um, and, and just this conversation that happened right there, you know, you had asked him, how do you feel about bringing this up to the group, this, this attraction that you're feeling and, and all these things? And he was like, no way. You know, that's not going to happen. And then in the course of the conversation, when Ella started confessing sort of her, her experience and started talking about her, her stuff, he, he just blurted it out. It just came out, right? Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
and nobody yeah. saw it coming. I didn't see it coming because, like, he's like, no, I don't want to talk about that. Right. And, you know, I think what was so what was so poignant, and, and, and of course, he says, I'm attracted to you. And even, you know, even as we talked about in, in, in our individual sessions, I think it would be it would be incomplete to say that, you know, that he never thought about Ella like in that way of like having right. sex with her, right? Like, like, does like, is that what, yeah, yeah, of course he's like, he's drawn to her sexually. The whole notion of the, of like, she's not hard to look at. Right. Like, yeah, and so do you think just... like, do you want to think about having sex? Like, well, no, he's not thinking about this. He's not making a practice of it. But does he, does he like have the, does he, is he aroused sexually? by her? like, yeah, right. He is. And the thing is, we are so frequently unwilling to name this that all we do Mostly all we do is say, well, that's just bad. And I'm just going to turn that away. And I don't further explore the question, what is behind that? What's driving that? Yeah, there could be yeah. certain things. Arousal can happen. But what else is going on underneath that? That whole notion that you've just, you know, rightly pointed, this whole scene, soothe, safe, secure. And the beautiful thing about that interaction was that eventually even for them, as he was able to name these things that he that he felt seen, soothed, safe, secure in Ella's presence, it actually and 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 at the same time he's not going to exploit the relationship. And this is what's key: that he can feel this longing, this desire, and not devour the relationship, not take it in the direction that her boss was trying to take it. Right. Well, you, so, you do say in the group, the one thing you, you, you do have to have the no, right? There, at some point there is the exactly. no in the group. Right, yeah. Ex- exactly. That we are, we are going to say no. And it is naming the desire in the face of the, it, it, is, it is having the no, like, no, we're not going to, nobody, we're not going to have intercourse here in the middle of the group or outside the group. Like that's not going to happen. Of course, you can't control, like, I can't, absolutely can't control for that. Like, no, like, the point is, like, you can't control for that in any circumstance. Like, nobody has that much power to stop that. But what we are saying is that we are going to allow for us to name these things in order for us to get behind the curtain, in order for us to get to the deepest bedrock of what this is about. And the beautiful thing for William was to be able to name that this is what I want also for my wife. But even if I can't get everything from my wife, this is telling me like, this is a thing that I'm going to continue to name because this is the longing. This is God. This is the eternity that God has put in our hearts. And for Ella as well, to have an experience with a man who can demonstrate desire with a capital D, desire, a holy desire for her, this sense of longing to be seen by her, soothed by her, all those things recognizing that she is not going to be devoured in the process, recognizing that not only is William going to protect her from himself, but the entire group is going to protect each other from each other because this is what the community does. And in so doing, it gives them both the opportunity to explore that the ultimate source isn't going to be in sex. The ultimate source of being seen, soothed, safe, and secure is not going to be in sex. It's going to be in the experience that we have with God and with each other in those moments that are non, in which sex is not the ultimate answer to the question. Because what I want is we like to say in the business, right? You know, if, if sex is what we want, then we know that what we were looking for is orgasm. And with orgasm, when it's over, it's over. But we don't want over. We don't want to be, we want to continue to be growing in this way. And so, you know, I, I can imagine that you all, as you're listening to this, you're like, gosh, I don't, I don't know that I would want to be, be in that situation. The issue is that this situation is happening everywhere, all day, everywhere you go. It's, ha- it's happening between people in the church pews. They're just not naming it. They're just white knuckling it. Well, you say that, that sex, is, sex is a part of every group, whether it's a, you know, a, a single gender group that's getting together or... That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so naming what we want is crucially important. We see how, you know, we can imagine when someone asks us, what do you want? Well, I got all kinds of answers for this. Like, I don't know. The part of me that's like, well, what's the right answer to that question? 
the part of me that wants to know that, like, oh, if, if I could have a, a set of options, if you could tell me what the options are, maybe, you know, with, even within a range of what the right options are. Right. You know, we, we talked at the beginning of the episode today that you're wearing your Christmas colors. Right, and right. The question around my house right now is, you know, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, my and, gosh, yeah. you know, for me, it's like, I, 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 when you, I have no, you know, I have no idea what I want for Christmas. I don't, you know, give me a sweatshirt. That'd, that'd be good. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't, but, um, I mean, the, the asking of the question is them wanting to, me to be better known and wanting to, you know, but the, like you say, the, there's, there's so many options you know, what do I want for Christmas? Right. Give me a couple ideas and let's talk through <laughs> it. That's, it'll be better. What do you think I want? <laughs> Inquire me some, with me. Give, me. give me some socks. Yeah. Sock? Yeah. 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 Well, I, you know, as, as I, I, um, I, I would say this too, this, this particular question can be so, uh, evocative that it, it's, 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 it's very easy for us to pass over it. And yeah. we start to sit with this question, and this question starts to bore a hole into us that runs pretty deep. Because this question is, these are the first words of Jesus in John's gospel, John 1, when he turns to John the Baptist's disciples who are following after him, and he says to them, what do you want? And I think it's so easy for me to wonder, like, does Jesus, is, is he really serious about that question? Is he really serious right. about like, is he, yeah, well, like, That's why I want to like, well, what's the right answer? Yeah. And What's yet, the right I, answer? I, I think that he takes us so seriously that he really wants he really wants to enter into the dialogue with us. He really wants to know. And as we will see in our next episode, this notion of Jesus' inquiry, what do you want? You might say, well, no, if the answer to this is supposed to be, well, I want God, right? I mean, that's the right theological answer. I want, I want to desire the great desirer. But like, you know, that's often not true for me. I, I want, I, 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 I want to be aroused. I want, I want sex on demand. And sometimes, you know, it's not even for my wife, right? Like these, if, if we're going to be, I, I want convenience. I want comfort. I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, all the things that I, that I want. And Jesus doesn't allow us the convenience of just avoiding the question. He's really serious about it, such that if the answer eventually is going to be, I want you, he wants me to get there honestly. He wants me to get there by answering all the other questions of what I want before I arrive there in order for me to work through that. But I am so fearful of what's lying underneath the rocks of those answers that I will often just simply avoid it. And in avoiding it, I find myself developing all kinds of coping strategies that create all kinds of other trouble for me because I'm not willing to answer or engage that question. Yeah. the Our friend Nicole Johnson, is. I remember her quoting Oz Guinness, and it's, uh, gosh, sin is the, I'm going to mess it up. It's the, uh, it's seeking to quench legitimate needs illegitimately. Yeah. Right. 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 So, so, you know, William had legitimate needs. Right. Right. Very legitimate needs. And I'm not saying that he went so far as to try to quench those illegitimately, but that's where right. culture would have you go. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. and the beautiful thing is, is that when we don't name these things, we end up making it more likely that we do the very thing that we don't want to do. But in naming them in the context of this community, we expand our imaginative capacity for accessing how we actually can beautifully have these needs be met. Because for William, the work was for him to go back to his wife and have the conversations and say, this is what I like, this is what I'm discovering. I really want more deep, connected intimacy with you. It's not like that I just want more or better sex with you. I want to be seen by you in certain ways. I want to be held. I want, and as we will discover also later, this notion of what is it, you know, what parts of us, right? It's not just William as an adult that wants these things. It also tracks with the parts of William that are really, really young, that got stuck at certain developmental stages that are still longing to be seen, sued, safe, secure. 
Right. And it's, it's asking, having someone ask that question to you over and over again, what do you want? And asking exactly. yourself that question over and over again and doing that work. Or you can go to the person and be asking for something that's completely not what you're looking for. Exactly. Until you, until you do the work and get to the heart of what it is that you really want. Right. And sometimes I think like in that conversation that you had with, with William, that you almost could have cut to the chase and not asked all the questions that you asked and let him find him on his own. You could have, with all the work that you've done, with all the people that you've done, you know his situation, you could have probably just skipped all the inquiry mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. gone right to the answer. But mm -hmm. that would not have done him any good. No. In my opinion. No. No. Yeah, and I think that this is, and, and, and this is what's hard for me with Jesus, right? Because what I want Jesus to do is to skip all the inquiry and just get right, <laughs> could you believe, just like get me to the end of the movie? I, I, don't, I don't want all the tension. I don't want all that tension. And he's no, because he, he, like he's, he seriously wants like real partnerships. He wants real partners in this yeah. and he doesn't want to skip our development. He wants us to grow up into being his younger siblings in all of our fullness and answering this question in particular is an important way for us to get there. Yeah. So that takes us to the next question, which is, can you drink the cup? Right. And you know, one of the things that we tell folks is that, uh, if you take this venture seriously of becoming a professional human being, you're going to suffer. This question, can you drink this cup, comes from Matthew chapter 20, the 22nd verse, where in Matthew's gospel's version, the mother of Jesus' disciples, James and John, comes to him and says, you know, my boys have given up their retirement fund to come and work for you. And I'm thinking that like, if you would put them on your right and your left, when you come into your kingdom, that that would be like proper compensation for the fact that they've left their dad to do all the fishing work by himself. And, you know, who knows if it's, she's just tired of their complaining or if she's like gonna take it on her own. And he turns to her and to them presumably because they enter into the conversation very quickly soon thereafter. And he says, you do not know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? And they chime in very quickly. Yes, we can drink the cup. To which, of course, only, only we who are reading it after the fact, we look at it, we look, what a bunch of knuckleheads. Like they have, they have no freaking idea what they're talking about. Like, yeah, we can, we can drink the cup. We can drink the cup because like, heck, if I get to be on your right and your left, because we that's why we presume that like, that's what, we're asked, that's what we're after, to be on your right and your left, then I'll drink anything. Notice he doesn't say, well, if you drink the cup, then yes, you can have the right or the left. He doesn't, like, he just kind of dismisses the question. And then he goes on and says to them, and indeed you will. And this notion that if we are going to move towards states of integration, if we're going to become deeply known, if we are going to enter into life to create and become beauty and goodness in the world, suffering is going to be part of what we experience. And, you know, we, we talk about how we suffer for probably, I mean, this, is, this may be overly simplifying. We generally suffer for three reasons. We suffer because of things that happen to us, whether through circumstance or through other people's behaviors. The second reason that we suffer is because of what we do to ourselves, which as it turns out is probably the most dominant reason that we suffer. What I do to myself in the privacy of my own mind, what I do to myself in the active ongoing practice of my addictions, what I do to myself by sharing my cistern full of shame and contempt with other people. The third way that we suffer, though, is that when we eventually decide that we're going to turn the prow of our ship around and move toward the light, it's the kind of suffering that happens when you hear the voice that says, come out of the darkness, come into the light, and you walk out of that movie theater where you've been in the dark for two and a half hours, and you walk into a brilliant sunny day, and your eyes are pained because they're not used to what they have to take in. When we move toward integration, when I, I mean, like, like there's a certain suffering, you know, William was suffering and, and others in these stories, like people are suffering with, by the time we start to wake up to the light, the light hurts our eyes. 
So much so that you talk about a lot of, not a lot of people, you talk about there are people that leave. Exactly. Because they, even before they get there. Right. Because it's just too much. Right. We've had people in these confessional communities that have been in the community for several weeks. And at some point they cross a threshold in which the work is too much. And in fact, we've had some people that leave and like they never contact us again. These are people that we've been working with for a couple of years in individual counseling. And we invite them into the group. They're in the, they begin the group and they just ghost us. It's not like, a great business plan on your part. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure retention is something you want as a doctor. Right, you you do. I mean, I suppose it's kind of like, you know, like Home Depot, there's like, you know, the the, the the part of their budget that they have to include in for all the stuff that gets stolen out of their store every yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, these moments of like, you know, and, they're, and, they, and so people, this is the thing, they don't come to us and say, you know, Kurt, I think this is just too much for me. I'm, could we, could we, no, because the very notion of, even saying that would be part of processing it. Yeah. They reach a threshold that they can't tolerate and they bolt. Mm. And this happens to us. I mean, like, Peter and Judas were not that different. <laughs> In many respects, they're cut from the same bolt of cloth. I mean, the Gospels would have us see that Peter is this passionate guy. Judas is equally passionate. Like he's the guy. Like, hey, why? Why would you? Why aren't you giving that to, taking that all that perfume and like selling it? And like, there, there's so many other things. Like, we, Judas had a plan. Judas had a vision. Judas was, Judas was all about Jesus. Peter was all about Jesus. At the end of the day, they both commit similar acts of betrayal. Mm -hmm. But one of them couldn't tolerate the reality of everything hmm. that was unfolding. And so this notion of can we drink the cup, what I experience, the shearing effect of what happens when I turn the prow of my ship into the wind to follow after Jesus, to be in this community, to name the things that are true about my life, such that I'm going to allow you to gaze upon them long enough, such that you'll then inquire. And, you know, after a while, you're like, gosh, people start to learn that there are things about themselves that they don't know that they don't know. And the reason that they learn it is because people ask them questions. And many times with practice, those questions eventually lead to great liberation, great freedom, great joy, but there's also the momentary, mo the, the moment of, of terror, of now living with the reality, like, oh gosh, I, 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 you know, how much more is there of me that I don't know that I don't know? And the part of me that has to contend with this, this suffering that I will go through because I will name the things that I want. And what if I'm in a marriage in which I'm naming the things that I want over and over and over again here in this group and the marriage itself isn't changing? What if my son is still addicted to, you know, heroin? What if I can't, stop my boss from abusing me and I can't just easily go get another job. All the things. What about what happened to me when I was a kid and was mistreated emotionally, physically, sexually? All the things. It would just be easier for me to numb that out in all the ways that I've been using. But to name these things, to answer the question of Jesus, what do you want, leads me to the possibility that the things that I want may be things I can't have immediately. I want to have, I, I want to have a career as a painter, right? I, I want to be an artist and I'm having to, you know, do this other work. I'm, you know, because I, I have to make ends meet or even more so I, I'm really working to have this particular addiction, you know, out of my life, but I still have this yearning. that's really hard for me to turn that off. <laughs> I have a, you know, a challenge with my, you know, with my parents who are in their 70s or 80s and they're not willing to work on their own stuff. And every time I'm with them, it makes me feel like I don't want to be with them. But I got to somehow like, how do I do that? I could just numb it out, but instead I'm going to be present in this space. And as I do, there will be a cup that I will have to drink. And for many of us, even the practice of our faith puts us in positions in which we're mistreated 
because of those things, because of the things that we long for. We long to be seen, soothed, safe, secure. And in that process of moving forward, we touch the lives of others who find themselves to be made uncomfortable in such a way that we pay a price for that. And so it's really important for us in these confessional communities to name the reality that suffering is part of the game. That it is not a thing that we will ultimately be able to get rid of. Where we can, we will move to eliminate it. But where we cannot, we merely do not want to treat it as a thing that is unpleasant that we're trying to like not pay attention to. We want to invite it into the room and name it in order for us to be aware of how Jesus' very presence in being with us in this place of painful experience, his presence is not just reminding me that he's present, his presence is transforming my experience of the pain and the suffering itself. And what does that do? Because that enables me to be a channel of that same kind of healing and regeneration in other dimensions and domains of my life where other people are also seeking to be seen, soothed, safe, secure in a part of their life that they don't have a guarantee is going to change right away. And in that regard, we're really looking to better understand how suffering is not just a thing we have to put up with, but is part of what God is using in the world to transform who we are. And that takes us to the fourth and final question that the chapter brings up, and that is, do you love me? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm aware of our, of our time, and I don't want to shortchange us here. Uh, we've been going at it for a while. Um, this notion of Jesus talking to Peter in John 21, many of us may be familiar with this conversation in which he finds Peter on the beach, Jesus having prepared breakfast for them, for the disciples, and he starts in. And we, I, I talk about this conversation in detail in The Soul of Shame, actually. In this particular case, our emphasis is on how Jesus is coming for Peter. And he asks him three times, according to John's gospel, do you love me? And perhaps three times was to make up for the three times that we know that Peter denied him. But perhaps it was 33 times. Who knows? Maybe it was just the beginning of an ongoing conversation. Because Jesus wasn't just inquiring to check on Peter, to see if Peter really did love him. Jesus was coming to turn the stones over where any residual shame was left for Peter. Because everybody on the beach that morning was deeply aware of what everybody was aware of. And that Peter threw Jesus under the bus. Yes, everybody else ran away as well, but nobody actively, verbally, especially Peter, threw Jesus under the bus and I don't even know him. And Jesus does not come with condemnation. He comes with genuine curiosity, with the attention, with the intention of recommissioning Peter, recommissioning him to create and curate beauty and goodness in the world. Peter had been out fishing. Peter had returned to an old way of life. And that's a lot of what we find ourselves feeling like that's the only thing we can do, is returning to an old way of life. We can't imagine actually being artists of a new genre. It's hard for us to imagine the new thing that God wants to create and curate with us because primarily our shame is still wrapping itself around our ankles. But in this case, Jesus is asking, do you love me as a way to get to the part of Peter that was still harboring shame in order to expose it, heal it, and recommission it? And in this way, we are also called to invite people to do the same for us as we do in these commission, we do in these confessional communities. And in addition to that, really being aware that we are also conduits for being curious with other people. Do you love me in all of our intimate relationships is not a question that is trying to condemn people. It's not a question that we're trying to test people. It's really a question of curiosity coming for people to regenerate and recommission. And in these confessional communities, this recommissioning isn't just for those parts of us that we find to be a little bit off. 
but particularly for the parts of us that we can't imagine anybody coming for. And in fact, it will only be the imaginations of other people who have to do that work for me until I can catch up. Hmm. I think, Pepper, of the relationship that you and I have, and um, I think of, you know, some things that we've shared with each other about our internal state of affairs and our lives that, uh, you know, there's been no small amount of shame. And I, uh, I, I just want to reiterate how grateful I am for the moments when, as I've named things to you, that uh, I can only imagine in terms of humiliation, that I see in your eyes something different, but that my heart and mind, that my brain has to like count on you to imagine something beyond me while I try to catch up. And so I'm, uh, as we wrap up this episode, I'm just really grateful that these are four questions that you and I have shared together. And uh, just really, really grateful. Me too. <laughs> Me too. It's a, an embarrassment of riches, Kurt. Mm. You know, uh, this podcast, this season's podcast, is certainly not meant as a substitute for the book. It's meant as a companion piece to the book. And there is so much more in this book and in this chapter in particular that we didn't get to. Uh, I'm hoping that our conversation helps bring uh, bring some of some of the book maybe even more to life for you or get you more excited about it. But in particular, this chapter, you have several paintings by Mako Fujimara that are in mm-hmm. here and they are mm-hmm. done. Uh, the, the printing is beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And you can spend time dwelling on these these paintings. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's really wonderful. So I urge you to, if you haven't already purchased the book, The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing and Beauty and Community. I urge you to go get it. Um, We will be back next week uh, with Chapter 10. Mm -hmm. And Kurt, I love you. It's been a great, great day. Great to be with you, Pat. Thanks so much. You too. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.